Hello and welcome to the Surgical Spirit Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Haider Al-Hakim, the Third Eye Doctor. Pull up a chair and get ready for some candid and uncompromising discussion with experts, innovators, agitators, and influential people from every corner of health and well-being. From inside the hospital to at home in the kitchen, we're leaving no stone unturned in our quest to uncover the secrets of healthier, happier, more successful, and less stressful lives. Thank you so much for joining us, and without further ado, let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, Jane. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm really well. Um, Royal Ascot. Tell me about Royal Ascot. How are you a Royal Ascot nurse? Oh, that was an accident. I um, I kept my horse at a livery yard with the clerk of the course at Windsor Racecourse. Mm-hmm. And one afternoon she rang me up and she said, uh, how about uh, coming and working for um, Windsor Racecourse this evening because our nurse is sick? And I said, well, I don't know anything about pre-hospital nursing. I'm a palliative care nurse. And she said, it doesn't matter, just turn up. <laughs> <laughs> Opportunity. So I turned up. Yeah, turned up and I loved it. And um, this will be, I was setting Windsor Racecourse up yesterday, that will be my 12th year there. And at Ascot, I think I've done about eight years. So um, I went and did some training in pre-hospital care. And um, and I really enjoy it because it was sort of yin to the yang of what I was doing. Um, so I look after the jockeys when they fall off. And, you know, what's the craziest story? Jockey oh, story. Heavens, heavens above. Well, they hurt themselves a lot. Yeah. And they're all completely mad. And I'm sure they won't mind me saying that because they're adrenaline junkies, most of them. Um, so sometimes they hurt themselves really badly, but they always know because they've been doing it for such a long time exactly what they've done. So they'll come in and go, I've done my collarbone again, nurse, or, you know, and this one lad came in, I've done both collarbones this time. Have you ever met anyone that's done both collarbones <laughs> at the same time? <laughs> or they, they try and pretend that they're not concussed, like a lot of professional athletes. So we have some questions that we have to ask them in order to ascertain whether or not we think they're concussed and but they already know the answers um like who's the champion jockey and obviously if it's the champion jockey he just says me <laughs> and what's the funniest kind of uh, injury that you've come across oh uh other than the double collarbone um they dislocate things quite a lot oh. um, sometimes we had we had a couple of cases of them sort of they get pile drived into the floor wow bits of them get shoved in at, at, at great velocity because the horses are doing sort of at 35, 40 miles an hour when they're really going for it. So if you come off at that speed, parts of your body will get pushed into the turf if it's nice and soft, quite quite hard. So sometimes bits of them end up planted. Oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> but yeah. they keep back for more. They keep, well, yeah, I mean, as you said, they're sort of adrenaline junkies, isn't it? It's sort of that thrill. Yeah, and they're tough, really tough, really, really tough guys. They're, you know, they. They. How about the girls? They they must be even tougher. Yeah, when I say guys, I mean girls as well. But yeah, they are absolutely. You know, they 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 bounce back. I mean, when um someone in the training, I always say to them, you know, we try and get the um people the the jockeys fit to fall, not fit to ride, and you can you can cross that over to mental health as well about getting yourself ready to fall, not just ready to ride. And um, but yeah, and mentally they're very tough as well because they just have to get back on and do it again. That's what they've chosen to do. But some of them were off for quite a long time. You know, they they get really nasty spinal injuries and stuff. Mm. But, but the whole craziness around Royal Ascot in particular is just unbelievable. I honestly, 
sincerely thought that I had seen drunk people. And then I went to Royal Ascot and realised I hadn't. <laughs> and I guess they're all celebrities and people of great uh, standing in society. Yeah, and, and, it, and but, but vomiting down yourself is a great leveller. Wow, okay, okay, interesting. <laughs> Bless them. Apart from the Queen, obviously she doesn't do anything like that. She just have you met up. the Queen? I have met the Queen several times, yeah, because she, you know, she's there when we're there, so we have to smile and wave. What is she like? She's lovely. Yeah, yeah. The, the staff, her staff and the people around her, they absolutely adore her. She is exactly what you think she is. She is a really nice person. She's very um, feisty. I wouldn't cross her um, because she's, but she knows she knows her own mind. But then she's always been like that, um, and uh, she loves the horses. And she's very, very, um, you know, into animal welfare and making sure that they're all looked after properly when they retire, when they belong to her. Um, and she gets very excited when she wins. Of, oh, of course, naturally. <laughs> so, and 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 tomorrow you're you're talking at the RSPCA. Yes. Tell us about that. So one of the one of um, two three years ago, I was asked right at the last minute to speak at the Association of Dogs and Cats Homes conference about what I was doing by a friend of mine who works for Battersea, um, and um, out of that has come customers to do with animal welfare, which I didn't really appreciate was going to happen to me when I started putting this training together. But in actual fact, um, staff who work in animal welfare are amazing, um, and they. Uh, they dedicate themselves so much to what they do that they suffer really badly from compassion fatigue and at the moment vets still have one of the highest rates of suicide of any profession um, so I felt very strongly that I was something I wanted to do and the RSPCA approached us at the beginning of last year and um, um, we've been having sort of talks with them about putting some training in for them and then they asked me to speak at the RSPCA conference which is tomorrow and the next day so I'm running a a, um, a course, a short like workshop on just mental health awareness, and then two on compassion fatigue, and um, and I'm one of the keynote speakers. Yeah. And it's going to be quite quite interesting and fun. Yes, it will. <laughs> are, you, are you going to tell us about it, or or are you going to keep uh, it a secret? Speak. Yeah, I've got my husband dressed as a giant dog, and um, and he's going to be the one that rescues his rescuer back by recognising the fact that his human has got compassion fatigue and contacting EF training and getting some training for her so that she can recover and get back to being her happy self that he loves. Um, but I don't think they're expecting that. Well, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes you've got to do things unconventionally to to, um, to get the message across. Absolutely. Especially when you're trying to get people to have a think about things in a slightly different way. You know? Yeah, and it's not easy talking about compassion for you know fatigue because it is you know to start off is fairly complicated, but sort of essentially it's quite simple. Could you kind yes. of sort of take us through it in a sort of simple way about yes. compassion fatigue? Yeah, of course. So up until the work of a chap called Charles Figley, who was sort of the father of it in the states in the late 1980s, um, everything got lumped together as being called stress and burnout. And even if you were doing a, a very uh, traumatic job, as, as you know, medical staff and animal care staff do, you still it was still all lumped together. But he realised there was a significant difference, and that difference was that this was trauma, and that actually what you were feeling was fear. 
and that that fear response led to the stress response and that is different from working in a in a stressful environment for example in the stock exchange or in a bank or something because the the foundation of the feeling is based on something different and it does something different to your nervous system so he he started to look at it and he realized that the the stress response was coming from not just witnessing trauma but also it being described to you so counselors who were for example counseling people who were rape victims or trauma victims were experiencing the same type of symptoms as frontline staff who were experiencing it firsthand um, so he started to do some work on it and over the last sort of decade or so him and his team have developed training for staff in America which has been much more accepted over there than it has here um, and they they've been very successful very successful at what they do um, he's written lots of books about it he set up the Figley Institute and um, and then they started to roll out training via e-learning which is the one that I've done um, which is quite a long and complicated process and it's um, validated by the International Association of Trauma Professionals so you have to go through quite a process to be able to do it and then they you have to revalidate every year to say that you've done stuff um, so so compassion fatigue, if you like, is almost the opposite of burnout. So when you burn out, you have nothing left. When you're suffering from compassion fatigue, you've become overwhelmed by the feelings that you feel. Um, and staff report very similar feelings to a PTSD, except that usually they, they still care. They still care deeply for what they do. And that drives them forward to continue to go on longer than most of them should do. They, they really because that's their mission um, and we are very da- it's very dangerous but with with um, professions with the big p caring professions we call ourselves our job <laughs> and as soon as you call yourself your job it becomes much more than just your job it becomes your mission in life and therefore if you feel like you're failing it you you can't you find it difficult to square and so people really really suffer um, and so over a period of time, it, it's it's something that is an occupational hazard. You, know, you are going to get compassion fatigue. You walk every day in someone else's suffering, you're going to get wet as if you were walking through a lake. That is going to happen to you. But unfortunately, the way that certainly I was trained, which is 30 years ago now, we weren't told about it. We were just told that the way that you, you protected yourself from the emotional impact of the job that you do was not to get involved. And it was almost seen as a weakness. So if you did start to be affected by it, then you were seen as being not able to do your job properly, which made you less likely to ever go for help. So you just carried on and carried on and carried on with these feelings of being overwhelmed and traumatised. And Mr Figley puts the um, symptoms of compassion fatigue into phases. The first phase is the anxiety phase, which is where your trauma has set up your nervous system to really go for it. So you'll drive home after a really traumatic day with your legs shaking, your stomach churning. You're, you have all of those really strong stress responses to start with. Then over a period of time, that turns into an, a, a much more of an irritable response. So that's when you get home and something's happened. Like my, my, my thing would be if people had put stuff on top of the dishwasher instead of in it or something hadn't happened during the day that I expected it to, or someone pulls out in front of you in the car on the way home, you'll find that your response to that will be, I use um, Basil Fawlty beating up his car as an example of someone who overreacts massively in my training. Um, but that kind of thing. And then also uh, you'll notice at work that instead of feeling 
compassion when somebody is struggling to understand maybe what you're asking them to do or for me when I was a diabetes specialist nurse with people who were struggling with their diet instead of feeling compassion and trying to work out what I could do I would feel irritated um, and, and angry with them and then the next stage is that at this point most people start to feel like they they are not doing their job well enough and they start to feel very guilty and they withdraw and staff will withdraw from social activities they'll withdraw from patients they'll try and disappear if anything very emotional is happening because they just can't cope with it and then the final stage he called the zombie stage and i don't like that word particularly so i call it the robot stage which is when you turn up and you do your job but you shut yourself down as much as you possibly can to protect yourself but you still carry on because it's who you are and it's what you do um and you know a lot of these doctors and nurses unfortunately end up on panorama if they're not careful <laughs> because they they get picked up as not doing their job properly or they get complained about or someone tries to performance management which they would then see as a victimization um, or they go off on long-term sick and the statistic is that there are literally thousands and thousands of medical staff out there who have got to that point left and can never return because as soon as they go back into the environment that they were in before they get the same symptoms back because they haven't addressed the underlying cause so the most important thing for me is that when I do the training, I make sure that they understand what the underlying cause is. And then there's that moment in the training when everybody looks at each other and goes, oh, it's got a name. It's not just me. And it's a set of symptoms that other people have and everybody else in the room feels the same. And that's really powerful. And then instead of feeling those feelings and feeling helpless, we try and encourage them to see those feelings as a call to action. So if you're on your way home and your legs are shaking and your mouth is dry and you don't want to eat anything, you think, right, when I did the training, what did she say I should do if I felt like this? And you know what? They do it. <laughs> they don't ignore it because once people understand the root cause, they... They, they, they feel empowered. Yes, they're empowered. Absolutely the right word. They're empowered and they, and they do something about it. And if you give them really simple tools and strategies, which is what we do... Um, then they, they use them. Because I've had HR staff say to me, we can't possibly go in and do this training with the staff because if you point out to them that their job is stressful, they'll all go off sick. And I which, said, is, which is kind of backwards, isn't it? It you is. Know, it's completely yeah. backwards. It's not, and that is not how physical health and safety works. You don't give everybody training in how to look after their backs and they immediately all go off sick. What they do is they look after their back and we've got to get to a stage where physical and emotional health and safety are seen as equally important in a job where you are supposed to be using your body, mind and spirit to care for other people. And the most dangerous part of our job is empathy. But without empathy, we get nothing from our job um, and we give nothing to it. But people need to understand that empathy is a double edged sword and it's not a finite resource. So you have to put emotional you have to fill yourself up to be able to give and so it's really important that you recognize the feelings you respond to them and then you can become more resilient but you can't do that without understanding what's what 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 are the underlying causes the, the common causes because you of, said that of of when, when you said that there are causes to them feeling that way having compassionate fatigue so 
I mean, any time that you're working with people who are in distress, any time you're working in an environment where there's trauma, and the trauma doesn't have to be big trauma. Mm. It doesn't have to be witnessing a cardiac arrest or a death. One of the most insidious forms of it is that drip, drip, drip every day of being immersed in other people's suffering. For example, with Macmillan staff or palliative care teams, every single day you're dealing with death, dying and distress. And that has a cumulative effect on you over a period of time that you may not recognise to start with as having an effect on you, but it is. Um, but also equally, you can suffer from compassion fatigue if your job is very emotionally demanding, but also at home, you're looking after young children and maybe elderly parents at the same time. There are some really strong indicators that need to be risk assessed with staff, especially when they've got young families or their carers themselves so that the employers have a heads up that these staff are more vulnerable working on your own makes you more vulnerable if the trauma that you're witnessing is not an accident but an act of cruelty so if you're working in an environment where say you're working with children who've been abused that puts you at a much higher risk Um, younger people so staff within the first few years of, of qualifying are at a much higher risk. They don't have the support network or the life experience to draw on. Therefore, we're, we're seeing burnout. I had a, an article written on me by the Royal College of Nursing last year, and we've got on our website a compassion fatigue awareness test, which is scored out of 100, and it's self-scored, it's a job form. Um, and we literally had hundreds and hundreds of nurses hit that form over the next sort of couple of days. And the statistics showed that the nurses that were scoring the highest were the ones that were ticking that they'd been qualified under two years. So we're seeing the fact that the system that they're going into is breaking them really early. And a lot of them that emailed me said they were they felt that they couldn't continue doing the job. Um, so they're leaving, which is really, really sad. And and how can we solve this? Oh, obviously, EF training is sort of one thing, um, but on a bigger picture, you know, what are your sort of three top sort of ways of sort of addressing this? Um, uh, so when I, I mean, I mean, it doesn't have to be quickly, but something that can stop the tide, because we are so losing we need, the battle, really. Yeah, we need we need. We need compassion fatigue awareness and emotional health and safety training to be embedded in the education of the staff before they set foot on the wards. It needs to be day one, you, you know, they, you, you're taught how to bend over and wash your hands. <laughs> and day two, you do emotional health and safety training, and then that's embedded into every single part of your education. So when you come out, you already know how to do it. We then need to make sure that, that that's kept on the agenda so that when you're working within that environment, the, the people who are managing you are, have emotionally intelligent management who understand what they're asking the staff to do and keep it on the agenda so that self-care is normal and talking about how things affect you is completely normal, not brushed under the carpet, no more fingers in the ears and ignoring what staff are saying. So you have to give those managers the tools to be able to do something because we, when I talk to uh, at conferences, we say, you know, the staff get to that withdrawal phase. They often go for help at that point, and but the managers don't know what to say to them because they haven't got anything they can give them. So let's give them some tools so that they understand what they can do. And and really importantly, the management team have to model the behaviour 
that they look for in the staff with this. So it's no point in you being all hard and whatever yourself and saying, get on with it because that's what I had to do. And then being there till 10 o'clock at night and getting there at five o'clock in the morning and not looking after yourself and coming in when you're sick and not taking your holidays, you have to model the behavior. And I think if those three things happen, if health and safety training also includes statutory and mandatory emotional health and safety training, if we keep it on the agenda and de-stigmatize it, and if the management team take it on board, I think we'll, we'll make a difference. And they are actually reasonably easy things to do. Mm. You just have to get the message out as much as you can that this is what needs to happen. And the NHS does know it needs to change. And are there places in the NHS where this is happening? A few, mm. few pockets. Um, I've, I've been working with, with, a, with a trust um, in Berkshire that is putting it in place. They are moving forwards. Um, I'm working with one of the big London cancer hospitals. Again, they are taking it on and, and moving it forwards. And, 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 and what, why is that? Is it because, because of the style of leadership that they have? I think it's the type of leadership they have and also who they involve in that leadership. So the, the London Cancer Hospital um, is, their leadership also includes their um, pastoral care and counselling team. So they've kind of moved the, those senior management teams together so that their health and wellbeing team doesn't just include human resources, but it, it's brought in that extra element and then you see a change. Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite interesting because I've got a GP who's in Northern England and, and he's brought in life coaching yes, into his practice and it's made a massive, and, and, and also, you know, the spiritual aspects of things as well. Yeah. Um, and he's used a holistic approach to, to things because we do need other perspectives at the end of the day. Absolutely. And a lot of these big hospitals, they've got all the yeah. expertise there. You know, they've got, they've got people who can help you um, eat better. They've got dietitians, they've got physios, they've got OTs, they've got counsellors, they've got they've got it all there, but you've got, you know, they're not accessing it. They're not accessing the expertise. So that's you need that kind of sort of large leadership brain to sort of bring them all together and yes. have and have that emotional intelligence at the end of yes. the day. Yeah, someone who's got a little bit more vision and, and isn't afraid to to ask for help. You know, they've got to look outside what they're doing now because, you know, you go in and you say if you look at the staff um, satisfaction survey for the NHS, the, the number of people being going off sick is going up and up and up. And the two leading causes are stress, anxiety and depression. So mental health is going up and their physical health is going the other way. Um, they now spend one pound in every 40 on sick pay, the NHS, and they can't keep that up. So they haven't got to put much of that money back into education for it to make a start to make a difference. But you've got to do the right thing. Um, and I'm, I don't think that um, electronic ways of doing it, apps and stuff, are the right thing to do, because they don't they don't have the impact. the The impact is done through connection, through people understanding that that everybody feels the same, and then supporting each other. The the trust in Berkshire, he, the manager said to me, "What you've done by doing this training is you brought kindness back, because suddenly the staff are looking out for each other, and when Susie is behaving badly and stropping about and being difficult instead of thinking she's an idiot they're going actually maybe this is what's going on with her let's just take her out for a walk and see if we can work it out or what did you eat for lunch Susie because <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
how food affects your mood yeah. and how it can make you more anxious if you've had, you know, a Red Bull and Skittles for your lunch. Um, and, you know, let's let's go out and, you know, go for a walk and get some fresh air and see whether we can help her. So they're looking after each other a bit better. That's that's amazing. And, and you know, the, the reason why we do these podcasts is to is to bring people together and have that, you know, that have that human element, have that spiritual element to sort Absolutely. of our existence. And, you know, that way we can only move forward if we're all together and bang our heads together and sort of try and come to the solutions. It's been absolutely amazing, Jane. We've come towards the end of our podcast. What's your sort of final two messages for people to sort of go home with? Final two messages would be be kind. It doesn't cost anything to be kind. And please be kind to yourself. Self-compassion is definitely the most important thing with this. You are asking yourself when you do this type of work to do something really, really difficult. You're asking yourself to to give your body, mind and spirit and a chunk of your soul, I'm going to quote from another person, every day yeah. to help other people. And you have to put it back. You have to show yourself the same care and compassion that you show the people you look after. And then you should be able to do the job for as long as you want to do it and make the difference that you want to make. Thank you so much, Jane. It's, it, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Surgical Spirit podcast. For all the latest in the world of Surgical Spirit, don't forget to follow on Twitter at The Third Eye Doc and catch me on Facebook at the page The Third Eye Doctor. You can visit the website at www.thethirdeyedoctor.co.uk for more information on the work that I do. And please send us feedback and questions and suggestions for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. I've been Dr. Haida Al-Hakim, and I'll see you next time.